sermon series uh, called Novels uh, for the Summer. And uh, we looked at a great novel two weeks ago, Byzantium by Stephen Lougheed. And this time we're going to be looking at East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And uh, this is what John Steinbeck had to say about this amazing novel. He says, it has everything in it I've been able to learn about my craft or profession in all these years. And later said, I think everything else I have written has been, in a sense, practice for this. So he obviously thought very highly of this novel. The whole plot of East of Eden is, interestingly enough, built on the Cain and Abel story from Genesis chapter 3 and 4, the very first book in the Bible. This is what he had to say about that biblical passage from Genesis 3 and 4. He said, here is individual responsibility and the invention of conscience. If you, you can, if you will, but it is up to you. This little story from the Bible turns out to be one of the most profound in the world. I always felt it was, but now I know it is. So interesting. He thought extremely highly of the Cain and Abel story. It's not a stretch to say he was actually a little bit obsessed uh, with this passage. And East of Eden is, in some senses, John Steinbeck's exploration. Once Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they went out the east side of Eden. And that's where the title comes from, East of Eden. And so he was exploring the idea, are we as human beings, are we doomed to keep making the same sinful choice that Adam and Eve made? Are we as human beings doomed to keep repeating these awful choices that lead to pain and suffering? As I mentioned, Steinbeck felt that East of Eden was kind of his magnum opus, even writing a personal account of it. There's a little tiny uh, companion volume called Journal of a Novel. And the, the book took him so long to write that he wrote this little journal and uh, kind of kept notes. And this is what he said. I had set down in my own hand the 16 verses of Cain and Abel, and the story changes with flashing light when you write it down. What a strange story it is and how it haunts one. He just called it one of the most profound stories in the world, and then he tells us that it really has a haunting aspect kind of makes you want to read the text again, doesn't it? Makes you want to go back to Genesis 3 and 4, and that's what we're going to do, picking it up in verse 23. So the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and he placed cherubim east of the Garden of Eden with a sword that turned every way. They kept watch over the path to the tree of life. The man lay with his wife Eve, and she was going to have a child, and she gave birth to Cain. She said, I have given birth to a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was one who worked the ground. The day came when Cain brought a gift of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. But Abel brought a gift of the firstborn of his flocks and of the, of the fat parts. The Lord showed favor to Abel and his gift, but he had no respect for Cain and his gift. So Cain became very angry, 
and his face became sad. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why are you looking down? Will not your face be happy if you do well? If you do not do well, sin is waiting to destroy you. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Cain then Cain told this to his brother Abel. And then when they were in the field, Cain stood up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed because of the ground, which has turned its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer give its strength to you. You will always travel from place to place on the earth. Then Cain said to the Lord, I am being punished more than I can take. See this day you have made me go away from the land, and I will be hidden from your face. I will run away and move from place to place, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, whoever kills Cain will be punished by me seven times worse. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that anyone who found him would not kill him. Then Cain went away from the face of the Lord and stayed in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I don't know about you, but uh, kind of setting up the passage with Steinbeck's comments makes me really approach the passage differently. I've read that story before, you know, but to think that it, that might be one of the most important passages in all of the Bible and amongst all books everywhere, that's a really good example of why we're doing this series. Sometimes reading a novel, getting caught up in the story can force us to go back to the text with fresh eyes. We look at the text in a new way. Well, tiny bit about uh, John Steinbeck before we keep going. He is widely considered to be one of the best American writers to have ever lived. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1932 with his novel, The Grapes of Wrath. And then he eventually won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962. The last quarter of the book, East of Eden, was made into a movie in 1955 starring James Dean. And a three-part miniseries was done in 1981. And uh, now, Netflix is about to launch its own version of East of Eden. And it's really interesting that this story doesn't sort of seem to fade away. It keeps having cultural relevance. In fact, there's an amazing band called Mumford & Sons. And uh, they were kind of the premier band of the acoustic folk rock uh, phase of the last 15 years. And uh, the lead singer was totally obsessed with John Steinbeck. He says, I'm a big, big fan. He's English, but he had traveled to the States. And he said, I've been on the tour. I've been through John Steinbeck's house. I've done all this kind of stuff. And out of that, he wrote a song on their, one of their albums called Tim Shell. Now, Tim Shell turns out to be the Hebrew word that kind of is the center point of Genesis 4-7. And I'll show you. It says, if you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. 
So that where we, the English translation, you must, what stands behind that is the Hebrew word, timshel. Now that's the New American Standard Version or the American Standard Version. And uh, so it translated very much as a command of God. You must triumph over sin. All right, this is the King James Version. I'm not so good at King James, but I'll do my best. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So that's a little different translation. That, that's kind of the idea that God has already declared you will triumph over sin. It's, it's kind of a, a foregone conclusion. Now, what Steinbeck was fascinated with, he actually went back to the original Hebrew and did a bunch of work on the word timshel. And he asked the question, have either of those translations actually captured the true essence of that Hebrew word. Now, before we get to the answer to his question, it's quite an image, isn't it, that God is warning Cain that sin is right there. It's, it's on his front doorstep. The imagery almost is like a, a dangerous, violent animal waiting on his doorstep. And as soon as Cain makes that choice to open the door, sin will have him. Now, in order to kind of get a little bit of the sense of the story, I'm going to give you the speed review. So, obviously, it's based on the Cain and Abel story. So, there's two brothers in this story. Adam Trask, that's the Abel character, and Charles Trask, that's the Cain character. Now, near the beginning of the novel, a woman named Kathy is severely beaten and drags herself to Adam's doorstep. And when Adam opens the door and finds her, his heart is touched. He lovingly and carefully nurses her back to health. And eventually, once she's healthy, he falls in love with her and he asks her to marry him. What Adam Trask has no idea about, though, is that Kathy is kind of evil incarnate. And throughout the course of the novel, we discover just how horrifically evil this woman is. As a young teen girl, she had framed two boys and falsely accused them of raping her, ensuring that they're plagued by suspicion their whole lives. As an older teen, she drives her Latin professor to suicide by toying with his affections. She eventually runs away from home, but her parents track her down, find her, bring her back home, and, and for a while she pretends to be the dutiful, obedient daughter until they give her the combination to the safe. Once she's able to take everything out of the safe and rob the family fortune, she locks the doors and burns her house down with her parents inside. This is not a nice woman. She is horrific. And Steinbeck has really played off the idea in Genesis 4-7 where God says to Cain, sin is lying on your doorstep. He had Kathy lying on Adam's doorstep. Uh, when Kathy is recovered from her beating, they're into their marriage, then she actually betrays Adam and sleeps with Adam's brother, Charles. And he was only too willing to comply. When Adam finds out, he is totally emotionally shattered. 
When he confronts Kathy, she begins to reveal who she really is, the blackness and the evilness in her heart. And she eventually destroys what's emotionally left of poor Adam. Now, for the largest section of the, of the novel, Adam sort of functions like a zombie. He's physically alive, but he's emotionally dead. And in that way, Steinbeck had kind of played out the Cain and Abel story, that Charles had killed Adam, not physically, but emotionally. Now, as the novel progresses, and probably around the two-thirds mark, Adam is blessed to hire this amazing Chinese man named Lee, who becomes the cook for the family. And this guy is absolutely incredible. Uh, he parents the boys. He runs the household. He cooks and cleans and treats people well. But even more amazingly, this Chinese man, Lee, turns out to be kind of a philosopher trapped in a cook's body. And the climactic scene of the novel, the part that Steinbeck had been building towards, was one night they have this dinner. And uh, the friend Samuel comes over. There's Lee, the Chinese cook, and then Adam. And by this point, Adam's starting to kind of come back to life. They have a, a conversation about this word, Tim Shell. And this is kind of the peak. This is the center of the entire novel. I'm going to read this section for you. It says, Lee's hands shook as he filled the delicate cups. He drank his down in one gulp. Don't you see? He cried. The American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin, and you can call sin ignorance. The King James translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that man will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshel, thou mayest, it is also true, thou mayest not. Don't you see? Yes, I see, I do see, but you do not believe this is divine law. Why do you feel its importance? Ah, said Lee, I wanted to tell you this for a very long time. I've even anticipated your questions, and I am well prepared. He says, any writing which has influenced the thinking and the lives of innumerable people is important. Now, there are many millions in their sects and churches who feel the order do thou, and throw their weight into obedience. There are millions more who feel predestination in thou shalt. Nothing they may do in, can interfere with what will be. But thou mayest. Why, that makes a man great. That gives him stature with the gods. For in his weakness and his filth and the murder of his brother, he is still the great choice. He can choose his course and fight through it and win. Lee's voice was a chant of triumph. Adam said, do you believe that, Lee? He said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. It is easy out of laziness, out of weakness, to throw oneself in the lap of deity or of God, saying, I couldn't help it. The way was set. But think of the glory of a, the choice. That makes a man a man. When I thought about that this week as I was working on this sermon, I thought, wow, is that relevant to our culture right now? We are extremely quick in our modern society in 2022 to constantly excuse evil behavior, bad choices. We say, well, that person really wasn't guilty of assault and battery. 
because they were actually intoxicated at the time of the, in of the incident. Therefore, they're innocent. The person wasn't really guilty of abusing his wife and children because he himself grew up in an abusive environment. Steinbeck declares, ultimately, for an adult, that to be moral weakness. I couldn't help it. My way was set and determined. Steinbeck's case is that freedom of choice flies in the face of such an idea. I love that line. He says, but think of the glory of the choice. And free choice, biblically, is an amazing, wonderful gift of God. Without it, we would kind of be mindless automatons that only do what is programmed into us. Something less than truly human. Our love for God wouldn't be a legitimate true love because it would be programmed into us. But free choice is a double-edged sword, isn't it? It does certainly give us the free choice to love God, to love other people. But humans also can choose to be evil and cruel. Tim Shell, thou mayest, you may or may not. Steinbeck's words, we can choose our course, fight through it, and win. So I think he's right that that is an incredible gift of God, that, that sense of free choice. Cain had it, and each and every one of us have it still. But when you start living the Christian life, you, you figure out pretty quickly that's only half the equation. If it's left up to you and I on our own strength over the long term, we're not going to consistently choose the good. We can do it for a while, but we're eventually run out of steam. We need help. What prevents us from falling back into our old patterns, making sinful choices? Well, the book of Colossians in the New Testament has the answer. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is what it says in verse 24. This is the Apostle Paul writing to this church he's established in the Greek city of Colossae. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among, to, among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. You see, the apostle Paul had discovered the secret. For a guy who gave his life, as we saw through the series in Acts, continually thrown in prison, chased out of town, working tirelessly. And people look back and wonder, how did he do it? How, where did he find all the strength, all the energy? And Paul would say it was Christ in him. 
Christ in all of us as Christian believers. That's who gives us the energy, the strength to make the right choices going on and on. Because we're human. We know we, we aren't strong enough and consistent enough to always choose the good. You know, ultimately, the highest marks in the Christian life aren't for being self-reliant. The highest marks in the Christian life are for being God-reliant. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. You know, if you think about someone who's not a Christian believer, they're just a good person in our, in our community, and if they had a dream, they said, you know what, I want to go do something amazing in maybe a developing area of the world. And so they signed up maybe with the United Nations, and, and they go over to a refugee camp, and they serve. That's a beautiful thing. We need to applaud that. That is good and excellent work. Now, the exact same thing can happen with a Christian missionary. They feel God's call. They go to a developing country. What's the difference between the two? What causes the missionary to be on the field for 40 years? What is the difference? What keeps that missionary motivated and energized? It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christian missionaries will tell you over and over and over again, if they didn't know it before, they quickly learned it on the field, that they can't do it on their own strength, that it's ministering with all of Christ's strength, which he so wonderfully works in them. And that's true for every single one of us who follow Jesus now, John Steinbeck, as far as I've been able to determine from my research, remained a lifelong attender of the Episcopal Church in the United States. Now, at the same time, he was extremely critical of a lot of aspects of the church, but he never throughout his life lost his admiration for Jesus or the ethical teachings of the Bible. Steinbeck's underlying approach kind of seems to be that modern idea that humanity, through good choices, the use of technology, learning from our mistakes, humanity will eventually improve. That's partly why he was so big on that Tim Shell concept. We can choose the good. Human beings can and eventually will learn to fix all of our problems. It's a noble idea, and it's partly true in that we're created in the image of God. We have the capacity to choose the good. But human history has made it an open and shut case. Human beings do not consistently choose the good. Steinbeck died in 1968. North America, at least, was in the throes of modernism. And it's hard now in 2022 to believe the idea that technology is simply going to fix all of the world's problems. Think of digital technology. We have faster access to information, to, to entertainment. We have all of these things. Our internet speeds are getting faster every day. It's amazing, except at my house. It's pathetically slow. I keep calling, but anyways, okay, that's a side issue. We have this amazing technology, and, and often it's used for good, but at the exact same time, we have never in the history of planet Earth had universal access to pornography the way it is today. Show up at elementary schools in grade 7, you will find kids with phones 
looking at pornography. For every great use of technology, human nature seems to be able to corrupt it. Think of the incredible advances in medical technology, the, the leaps and bounds we've made in treating certain types of cancers or, or germ warfare, all those kind of things. That exact same technology can be twisted and flipped. And dictators and awful regimes in our world have used that to build chemical and biological weapons. Clearly, the greatest problem for the human race is not a lack of know-how. It is actually the darkness and evil of the human heart. But we do have a choice, as Steinbeck has so powerfully and helpfully portrayed. Thou mayest and thou mayest not, that concept of Tim Shell. One commentator on the book East of Eden had this to say. He said, Cain in his wandering still has a free will to conquer his basic instincts, to choose right from wrong. Sin is crouching at the door, hungry to get you. You can still master him, God has told him. We are all descendants of Cain. Abel had none. And possess free will in the struggle between good and evil within us. Condemned by neither nature nor nurture to be one way or another. We all create our destinies by choosing between virtue and vice. And then Steinbeck himself, near the very end of the novel, through the voice of the narrator in the story, says humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. We have only one story. All novels, all poetry are built on the never-ending contest in ourselves of good and evil. And it occurs to me that evil must constantly respawn while good, while virtue, is immortal. Vice is always a fresh, new, young face while virtue is venerable as nothing else in the world is. I want to close by this morning by reading those last two verses of Colossians chapter 1, this time from the Message Translation. I love the way Eugene Peterson has captured it. He says, we teach in a spirit of profound common sense so we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. That's what I'm working so hard at, day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy which God so generously gives. And I want us to walk away this morning with the clear thought in our mind that there's two parts. There's the glorious freedom of choice, as Steinbeck helped us see. And the great Christian answer that we are not alone. We have the amazing help of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now that is good news. Amen? All right. Well, it's my privilege this morning to lead us in prayer. So please join me.